Everyone and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me today is my uh, co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing tonight, Phil? Pretty good, Billy. How are you? Good. I'm looking forward to this. And we have our special guest. Most people love him. Some hate him. but we he is. Love him. We have retired NYPD police officer and, of course, defense attorney, Joe Murray. Joe, I'm so happy to have you on the show tonight. Oh, me too. It's always a pleasure to be here. Good to see you. Good to see you too, Philly. Thank you, Joe. Good, Good to see you. Working out all day, getting ready for oh, this. Well, you know, we're going to cover two cases today because both the cases, of course, are controversial. We're going to cover, of course, the Gabby Petito case and the finding of the remains of Brian Laundrie and his attorney, Steve Bertolino, who seemingly is on every damn TV channel known to man. And we're going to discuss some of his um, the things he's been saying on TV and whether, uh, you know, we're going to critique it a little bit. And then, of course, we're going to look into the um, the fatal shooting out in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, and we're going to look into that, all the ramifications with that, with Alec Baldwin. Does, you know, we're going to look into does he have criminal liability and all the, of course, the civil liability and just the tragedy, of course, that, that in, in fact is. But I want to show one of the most controversial things Stephen Bertolino said. I'm going to pull it up right, right, right away. Uh, I'll just make sure I got the exact time. But he said something about, um, first of all, one of the things he said was he didn't stop, start to represent Brian Laundrie until I believe it was um, the, the 13th of September. And he, we all remember he came back uh, on the 1st. So he's expecting us to believe that he wasn't called until the 13th. So no, he, he the first, said the 11th, though. It was the 11th. Okay, okay. The, all right, the 11th. But on the, uh, I'm getting it confused. The 13th was the d- day that Brian Laundry that's uh, when took, he left. took his hike. Right, yes. took his hike into right. the park. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put this little clip up because this caused a lot of controversy with everyone, and I I don't know how in fact he can actually. He, well, he tried to explain it, but I think uh, well, let's watch it first, and then then we're gonna we're gonna you know give a little critique on it. Bertolino says Brian's parents had feared when Brian left their home September 13th, 12 days after arriving home without his fiance, that he may hurt himself. Chris and Roberta knew that their their son Brian was was grieving. They knew he was. I want to stop it right there. <laughs> this is the 13th. 
So he, the, the attorney says they knew their son was grieving. Now, I know there's many ways to interpret the, the word grieving, right? One is that Gabby Petito was dead and he knew it and he was grieving over that. One, that he was mourning her, the breakup. But I think, and this is my interpretation of this, this was a Freudian slip. This was a big slip by this defense attorney. And he can't he can't take it back. He can't bring this thing back. I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it going now. So upset. And you know, they just couldn't control that he was leaving and he left. He walked out the door. And Chris has said to me, I wish I could have stopped them, but I couldn't. In East Islip, Kristen Thorne, Channel 7 I wish. Comments? Well, uh, that you're saying, Billy, that that interview was on the 13th of September. Is that correct? That, that right. when he made no, that no, statement? no, that's that's when that's, he made he made the statement about the 13th about 13th of, okay. of September. Well, yes. Well, 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 listen, I think that he's he's trying to. I think it's obviously a Freudian slip, and I think he's trying to uh, uh, put his uh, involvement into the case on the 11th because that's the day that she's reported missing. I, I mean, based on. Uh, on that statement. But uh, I mean, listen, uh, he's not a criminal defense attorney. He's probably never been before, uh, you know, a media camera before this, uh, this whole saga started. So I don't think he's got the, uh, the experience. And, and I think he made a blunder. He made a, he made a Freudian slip. It sounds like to me. Joe, no, I, I, I was looking at that myself. And of course, when you say you, he was grieving and we didn't even know that she was dead. Uh, Gabby, I'm talking about, then uh, it would be a Freudian slip. But I think what he was trying to do is characterize his emotions. Don't forget, Bertolino is in New York. He's in Long Island. His communications are either by, I think he said just by phone. It wasn't even Skype or anything uh, or Zoom. So I think there were some FaceTime comments. Yeah, there were some FaceTime meetings too. Okay. So, but I think he's just trying to characterize. You know, and it was a bad choice of words by saying grieving. I'm sure he was upset about what happened and, and them splitting up or, you know, things of that nature. But I also do believe to me that I have suspected all along because of the nature of this relationship. Don't forget, this guy Bertolino has been their attorney for 25 years before Brian was even born. So I can tell you just me personally with my own family and cousins and nephews, everyone knows I'm a criminal defense attorney. They have me on speed dial if something were to happen. And I get these calls from family members all the time, whether it's, you know, a, a minor incident uh, or something else that's going on hypothetically. So I can foresee due to the friendly relationship that maybe Brian even called Bertolino when they had their incident on the 12th. You know, I ran into this uh, incident in Moab. The police were going to arrest us. And I, I really do think they have that close relationship. So I also believe that perhaps when Gabby passed away in, in whatever way she, you know, no, Joe. She oh, was. She was. She was murdered. She was she murdered. Was they murdered. already decided that she was murdered. Yes, but what I'm saying is, like, I, I don't know if he, like, uh, I get destroyed for the, for offering this theory. But 
It's entirely possible that he walked off after another domestic incident, came back hours later and found her dead, was crying, was upset and called them. It's entirely possible. So they knew ahead of time that she was dead before anyone else did, but just didn't say anything. And that's all the more reason why his instructions were perfect. Say nothing. Don't talk to anyone. And I, it kind of makes sense. And then All right, Joe, Joe that, we're going to get more into that. But first, Will, Will, when you hear that word grieving, it was a Freudian slip, but maybe it was relevant to their communication that he knew. Well, Joe, I'm going to I'm going to interpret it by I'm going to interpret by the fact that the attorney knows and the parents know that he killed her. And that's why he had that Freudian slip, because he knew she was dead and he knows Brian killed her. And I so think that close. was his mistake. You, know? you and I are so close. I agree. <laughs> I think he and the parents knew that she was dead. Not that he killed her, but that he came across her and found her dead. So we're very close in that, and it would have the same meaning, right? I think that, that makes think the parents look much worse. If they if 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 they knew, if they knew, and even if he said she was killed by somebody else, if they knew and they didn't say a word. They were going to left Gabby's body out in the wilderness to be eaten by animals and all the likes of insects and everything. I mean, that makes them even look worse. I, I don't Come know, on. man. Oh, wait, wait. You're, you're a detective, very sharp guy. This guy has already had multiple domestic incidents. And likely because of the, them leaving the piglet, they had another one that perhaps got physical. You being the detective, when he calls 911 and says, I found my girlfriend dead and you ask him what happened and and how the and he says we had another dispute you're collaring him you're collaring no, not him necessarily joe not necessarily no way i i would definitely be looking at him i'll give you that 100 percent. but i'm not collaring him 100 percent. no way no way i'm I, first of all it's all hypothetical what we're discussing you're right but right if I get to the scene and he says, I found my girlfriend dead, I walked off, I'm going to listen to his story. I'm going to try and punch holes in it. Of course. That's, I mean, I think that's very, very logical of what to do as an investigator. But what are the, what are the rest of the details? I don't know. You know, how was she murdered? What, what is, there, is there evidence on the body? You know, so I don't know. I don't know that that would all fall in like that, Joe. I, he I has an attorney telling him, talking to him about this, and then he reveals to me Moab. And there's another very high-profile incident that we had. The police were there for an hour. Then we were given this order, and we had to separate for a day. You telling me that? So there's now this track record. Joe, well, guys, Joe, guys, let's. We're going to get to that, but please let me put this. This other. This was a, a short interview with Ashley Banfield. I'll it got very. That, it got very bombastic. They went at each other, and I just want to. I want to play this. It's all just surprising because Josh Taylor said today they were in lockstep with the FBI all the way along. Even the Northport police chief tweeted out, get us an interview no, with Ashley, the client on wrong. the following Wednesday. No, no, that's again. what they told let's us today. That's what no, they told us today. Play the clip you just played and let's listen again where he says, I do not know. Because that's what okay. he says. Ashley. I'm telling you, so they you told our Brian Enton today. Yeah. In a, in a whole, it's a 15 minute interview, sir. It's a 15 minute interview. And they said that they've been operating in lockstep with the FBI all the way along. Okay. Play the clip you played a moment ago and let's listen to him say, okay. I don't know. You know what? We're going to wrap that clip up. Actually. We absolutely, 100%. That's why you're here. 
100%, and we're going to rack that clip up. It takes a minute or so. I'm going to go to break, get the control room to do it, and after the break, we'll play it, and we'll get the clarity on that. Is that okay, Mr. Bertolino? A little bombastic there, huh? What, what, what were they referencing, Bill? What, they what? were referencing whether the um, FBI and the uh, local police were working together, and there was sort of leading to the fact that what, and we'll get to this later on. Was there a deal cut between uh, the FBI and the laundries that they wouldn't be prosecuted if they went and helped with the search again once the uh, park was back open and the water had receded? And that's another big issue now that a lot of people are talking about is that did they just go right to this backpack, go right to his clothing? And, and of course, the body was right in that vicinity. Because now the deal was cut, they weren't going to get arrested, so now they're going to cooperate. That's what that was about. I, th well, I, I think mean, that the that's a possibility. But, Joe, real quick, let me just throw this at you, what we were just talking about before the clip. Now, a, a client called you, says, I murdered my girlfriend. Or no, no, I'm sorry. He says, I found my girlfriend murdered. Uh, there's a domestic violence history. What should I do? I'm coming back to Florida. I would think a better approach to that would be, okay, this thing ain't going away. There's a major investigation. Let's go in. Let's talk to police. Let's explain your side of the story. I, I know you're, you're probably going to disagree with that, but I think that that might be a better uh, approach to what you're saying. The scenario you're, la you're laying out is that a, a stranger killed uh, Gabby and he just stumbled upon her and found her dead. And he ran because he was worried about getting uh, you know, arrested for the murder because of domestic violence history. Okay. He runs back to Florida. Now he has a conference with his attorney. I don't think that attorney, most attorneys, you'll answer it, you're a defense attorney. Wouldn't you think it would be a better scenario, knowing what we know that he took the van and the credit card and all the other things, that let's let's face this thing, let's go in and maybe there's evidence on the body. We're going to wait for the body to be decomposed and all the evidence washed away of the other murderer? I don't think so. Well, let me just clarify something. My advice or Berlino's advice to him, if he did communicate with him, at that time he discovered the body may have been, okay, we got to go in, we got to talk to them. It's really the client's decision. The client is the boss. We give advice. We give advice as to what to do. Don't answer that question. Don't do this. That's their choice if they want to accept our advice. So I'm not even going to say that he's told him to come home. Whatever his advice was, it was, but it's Brian's choice. And I think he panicked because he knew about their circumstances. And then one last thing is, if you look at that newlywed, the newlyweds who were murdered, they were stalked. They were stalked by that guy, the creepy guy. And he ultimately killed them. Perhaps we know that Gabby was found by the campsite. Perhaps... That guy or some other psycho out there was stalking Gabby. And when Brian walked away, he moved in. Angela also found out there was an escaped prisoner who was a sex offender. And he was picked up. Uh, he, he escaped, I think, in June and was picked up on September 28th. That guy was out there. So that's why. Yeah, I but, mean, you know, Joe, when I investigated the murder, one of the checklist things was run all the parolees in that building. It meant nothing, but there was 400 of them. You know what I mean? So that's creating doubt too. Or oh, did one of these 400 parolees that lived in this building, you know, yeah, that creates doubt. You're creating doubt, but the, the, the circumstantial evidence we have, 
points directly toward Brian Laundrie and most reasonable people. And I understand you're a defense attorney. And you know, he, he just, you know, someone on the screen asked this question. And before I get, I don't want to get too uh, off topic, but why were the laundries able to barehanded handle those bags, journal and other things when found? 100% they should not have. They shouldn't have touched anything. We, we, do we know that they did, though, Bill? I, yes. I, 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 yeah, I, apparently they recovered it. They should never have recovered that. Well, if they recovered it, that's different. They could have picked it up. Nobody was instructing them. Unless there were police officers there, then you're 100% no, right. But, 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 Phil, they should have held it until the police got there and pointed it. You shouldn't recover evidence. Of course. And, of and they, course. Should, they should know that, or they should have been I told that. Because who directed them into the park at that time? They were, allegedly they were called at seven o'clock in the morning, or the, oh, according to uh, Steve Bertolino, they called the police and gave them a heads up at oh seven hundred. We're going into the park, like they know exactly where he. And they went right to the evidence, and then his body's this, I, the whole thing smells. That you know? sounds like they went right to the location that they left him at when they were in the park a week before, or, or they knew he was going to be there. And, and I really don't think that this kid committed suicide, or, or I shouldn't say that. I don't think he was suicidal at the time when he left the house, because how could the parents in good conscience let him go? You know what I mean? So I, I don't think that he was exhibiting signs of being suicidal. Now, once he's into the park, and he's not suicidal, it's very likely that things could happen with an interaction with alligators and animals and snakes and all these other different things. So until we know the cause of that, then that may never come. You know, I think we'll have a better idea of what happened. But I don't know. I, I just I just find like, you know, you look at a guy who's a domestic violence abuser, the way he was, that's cowardice to me. I don't see him killing himself. I just don't see it. I see him more likely being engaged with an animal or, or an alligator or something like that. I could be wrong, but uh, that, that's, you know, that's the way it's looking for me. And one real quick last point. If he, uh, you know, the, the scenario that uh, Joe just brought up with sex offenders and the other double murder that happened, you know, within a, a proximity of that location, all the more reason that he should have came forward and said, I didn't do it. And then maybe there was evidence able to be recovered from Gabby's body. And he didn't do that. He he took the guilty way out. That He made himself look guilty. Whether or not he did it, he certainly made himself look guilty. And everything that his mom and dad did throughout the whole thing made them look bad with regard to not, you know, uh, we went through all the things, not communicating with the family, walking around, you know, acting like uh, it's a regular Sunday morning. Let me go out and cut the lawn, you know, all of those things. I'm just trying to be this 23-year-old kid who's had this, uh, you know, I guess because of their close quarters, they're on top of each other, and, you know, it kind of makes things worse. They had their little domestic incidents. Uh, you know, perhaps coming out of the piglet, they had another domestic incident that got back to the camp, and it got heated and physical. How, you know, maybe he had scratches on him, and now he's going to call the police? and say, yeah, I just found her like that. He's going to get collared right there. In any event, he's going to panic. Maybe I shouldn't say anything. I'm glad you brought up the piglet because on the day that the incident happened by the piglet, he was described as enraged. And we believe that that was the night that she was murdered. So we don't know if he was using narcotics. There was uh, maybe uh, medication from a doctor. Who knows what was going on? But I think all of his circumstantial evidence keeps pointing the finger at him in my mind. You know, Joe, yeah. let me just uh, play a little bit more. I want to play some more of this interview. And let's take a look 
at, at the this professional attorney and and his advice that he's giving. Let's listen. To okay, this. wait. Let's set speak, this up because you. I think you misstated what actually happened in the other one. I'm sorry, Joe. Go ahead. I think you misstated what happened in the other one. That other interview, what he was trying to explain was that he spoke to the FBI either Monday night or Tuesday morning. Based on his recollection, the FBI confirmed to him when he did that interview, 2.15 that day, he said, I can I confirm with them. They have it down in their notes that Bertolini spoke to them on Monday night. Monday night, he reported to them that Brian did not come home. And what they were trying to say there is that he didn't report it until Friday. And they played this clip where uh, the Northport police were saying, we're in lockstep with the FBI. I don't believe that that's true. But he does say, but he may have said something in passing. I don't know. And I don't think it was fair for Ashley Banfield to you know, present that argument that way, trying to say conclusively that the FBI shared everything, you know, in uh, real time with the Northport police. And that was just not fair. So just setting that up, that's what that argument was about, whether or not that guy said, well, he actually did say, I think it's impossible, but I don't think it's fair to him. All right. Well, let's listen to what he has to say right here. Uh, there are certain things that need to be done and, and I should say wrapped up before we can have further conversations of what may or may not um, have been done differently. Steve, do you think your clients, the Laundries, Brian's parents will eventually be charged with crimes? I have no reason to believe that. There, there has been some speculation out there. And again, I understand you don't like to talk about speculation that maybe some type of deal was cut. That, that they promised to cooperate with investigators for to get some type of immunity. Any truth to that? I can tell you no. Wow. Uh, when you want to talk, if you want to talk about body language yeah. and you want to talk yeah. about someone double preparing a lie, let's look at him again. Let's watch that again. I think your clients, the Laundries, Brian's parents will eventually be charged with crimes? I have no reason to believe that. There, there has been some speculation out there. And again, I understand you don't like to talk about speculation that maybe some type of deal was cut, that, that they promised to cooperate with investigators for, to get some type of immunity. Any truth to that? I can tell you no. There's no truth to that. What I can tell you is that conversations were had several weeks ago with the FBI uh, with respect to certain charges. Um, when, when questioned and, and when communications were had. Joe, I want you to comment on that. So he, he says no, but then he says a couple of weeks ago, there were conversations with the FBI on what certain yes. charges would be. So, I mean, he just contradicted himself. Well, let, let me just explain what I think was happening there. First of all, I think there was a, a time delay. Like he wasn't hearing uh, Tom in real time. Oh, oh. It was like a second or two. Because <laughs> no, 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 Joe, 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 wait, wait. I don't mean to interrupt you. I'm a very polite guy. But the first question, you think your client's going to be facing charges? No. Very quickly, no. no. Play it again. I disagree. Play it again. He says no right away. And All then right, when he on. missed, was the deal made? He goes, well, no. 
you know, look at it. Look, look at the first question and the second question. Check it out. Check it out. All right. Let me get to some. I'm getting be, better be, at this. Because it's, it's, no. I'm getting better at this. I'm doing it so often. And, and I should say wrapped up before we can have further conversations of what may or may not um, have been done differently. Steve, do you think your clients, the laundries, Brian's parents will eventually be charged with crimes? One, two. I have no reason to believe that. Is a delay. There's been some speculation out there. And again, I understand you don't like to talk about speculation that maybe some type of deal was cut, that, that they promised to cooperate with investigators for, to get some type of immunity. Any truth to that? One, two, three. I can tell you, no, there's no truth to that. What I can tell you is that conversations were had several weeks ago with the FBI. You know, Joe, I always found in an interview and interrogation, when someone was lying, they would repeat the question. And he did exactly that. So he's, he's lying. And, yeah, and he's I can tell you that's, that, now, I know that is a surefire way that someone's lying. Did, were you there last night? Was I there last night? Boom. And he did the exact thing. He repeated the question. He's lying. Not, not only that, not only that, Joe, I know what the point you're making. There's that little bit of delay, a two-second delay. Yeah. But my point is that when he does hear it, he answers. Now, I have no reason to believe that quickly. That's my Things point. need to be done. Yeah. And then he takes the deep breath with the second question. He delays a little more. Yeah. Speculation. It, it's hard to explain, you know. That, that they promised to cooperate with investigators for to get some type of immunity. Any truth to that? I can tell you no. There's no truth to that. <laughs> what I can tell you is that conversations were had several weeks ago with the FBI uh, with respect to certain charges. Um, so he just he, he just he just lied, and Joe, it, he just verified that he lied. lied. He contradicted himself. He lied, and he, he verified he lied. Thank you, that's, because that's not a lie. When you when you oh, he said I can tell you no, but then I can tell you a couple of weeks ago there were conversations with the FBI about certain charges. So what do you is it one is it one thing or is it the other? You can't no, no, be wait, you can't no, be fifty percent pregnant. You're misinterpreting what, what the <laughs> conversation, the context. He didn't ask him if he had conversations and he said no. He said, was there a deal cut? And he said, I can tell you no. And then he explained there were conversations that we had. He wasn't saying, you're trying to say that he first said we had no conversations about it and then admits the conversations. No, he said, was there a deal cut? And he said no. But I can tell you there was a discussion early on, as should be done, because you represent them. The first thing he should ask, do my clients have any exposure? Do, do, do the laundry parents have any exposure here? And they may have had a conversation about it. So we're not aware of anything right now or something to that effect. So they did have a conversation. Did they talk specific charges? Oh, we're looking to charge them with aiding and abetting. And, you know, no, it didn't appear from his answer. It was just raised and discussed. Good lawyering. That's what he should be doing to see if his clients have any exposure. And then he goes on. If you want to continue that, he'll explain it. Uh, MK, thanks for the 1999 Super Chat. This is the quote from MK, an innocent person wouldn't commit suicide. They would have hoped to get their name cleared unless he went out and gotten eaten by a gator who was an abuser, and the abuse escalated. Joe is making me crazy with his ideas. <laughs> we love Joe, though. So, uh, it's, you know, look, I, we, I think that, look, I obviously feel that 
Brian Laundry uh, killed Gabby Petito. I feel that in my heart. I feel that by the evidence. I'm with you. This attorney's job is to create doubt. I think this attorney, Steve Bertolino, is out of his league. I just think, 100%. first of all, he never had a case of a national uh, nature. I don't believe, you know, Joe, you know, you advise your clients. Every attorney advises their clients. Do not speak to law enforcement. He should take a piece of his own advice and shut up because he's not good at this. He's being eaten alive by these journalists. Let's finish this interview. Let's just watch the rest of it. And then, uh, you know, you can you can comment after that. When when questioned and, and when communications were had between myself and, and the FBI, um, I think it was realized that that charges were not appropriate. Um, there was never a threat. There was never a coercion. Uh, there was never a deal cut. But we're talking about I misdemeanor charges. Would not have been Steve, misdemeanor or felony charges? I don't know which, what level of crime or charge um, was in the mix. What I can tell you is there were conversations that were had, uh, and I, I definitely want to be clear. There was no threat. There was no coercion on, on behalf of the FBI. Uh, there was no deals. There were certainly conversations, as one would expect happens in every criminal case. You always have conversations with the prosecutors about how uh, the case may play out as to what may be on the table, so to speak. Yes, those conversations were had, but no deal was cut. The laundries have been cooperating with, with uh, law enforcement, both locally and federally, since day one with respect to Brian. And explain to our to viewers. Petito and, case, yeah, if you can explain to our viewers, because we've heard from so many people over the last several weeks on this case, but we've never heard from the laundries, and there's a reason for that, correct? Absolutely. And I've said several times, I, I said it over a month ago, the reason you haven't heard from the laundries is because I told them not to talk to anybody. I've taken the heat on that. I've accepted the heat on that. And as I've said, even last night, as you know, any attorney, any defense attorney, and anybody who went to law school will tell you the same thing. You do not talk under any circumstances. And any pundit who goes on TV and says, oh, I have a law degree and this is immoral and unethical. You know what? You are wrong. This is the job and the role of a defense attorney. You tell your client, do not talk to law enforcement, period, end of story. Did your, did your clients know their son, Brian Laundrie, was going to disappear when he left the house that day? No, they did not. What I can tell you is that Brian was very upset when he left, and Chris conveyed to me several times that, you know, he wished he didn't let him go, but he couldn't stop him. Um, so this has been a painful saga for them since September 13th. It's been a long haul. Um, but Brian is a grown man, young man, 22 years old. He wanted to walk out the door. He was entitled to walk out the door. You know the Laundries personally. You've known them for several years. You've said that tonight here on Top Story. I want to ask you, what do you want America to know about the Laundries? And is there something they should know about them as parents? I would like America to know that exactly what you said. Chris and Roberta Laundrie are parents. They are just people. They have feelings. They have children. One of their child children have just been confirmed as dead. It's sad under any circumstances. Gabby Petito notwithstanding, for any family, for any parent out there, this is a loss of a loved one. They're grieving. I would just respectfully ask People outside their home, go home, give it a break, get a good night's sleep, 
leave the laundries alone, even for one night. Please and thank you. Do you see any scenario where the laundries eventually reach out to the Petitos, to Gabby's family? As I said to you a moment ago, Tom, there are certain things that need to be, I'll use the term, wrapped up. There are conversations that need to be had. Uh, when those conversations are had, perhaps at some point in the future, you know, there, there will be, you know, communication between the two families. Um, I've communicated with Mr. Stafford in the past, the, uh, the Petito family attorney. Uh, I'm sure he and I will be having conversations coming forward. And, you know, what, what comes of those conversations will remain to be seen. Joe, what conversations need to be had? I think, you know, uh, he, he still has, you know, the Petito parents as clients. So whether or not there is some allegations that he's unaware of regarding, uh, you know, their, their involvement with him being in the park or aiding and abetting in some way. Um, I think there's conversations that are appropriate, totally appropriate. These are his clients. He's got to dig and, and, you know, find out what, you know, they're looking at. There's been so much talk and so much pressure on the government to have them arrested. And I, I for the life of me, couldn't see anything. So uh, I think that's important. They should talk about it. They should talk about maybe some of the conversations have to do with property that was removed. You know, that there, there are things that you have to complete, you know, your representation with. You just don't walk away when there's, you know, uh, a death of your client. I mean, you, I, I had to do this with a client who it was the day before he was about to get his sentence, uh, his his plea and sentence. And I called up and I talked to his mother. I, I called him, but his mother answered the phone on his phone and she was hysterical crying. I'm like, what happened? She says he's dead. I said, well, how did he die? You know, I was ready to prep him to, to go into court tomorrow. And she said, I went into his room and him and his girlfriend uh, you know, they were doing drugs and she found the needle in his arm, whatever it was, fentanyl or a hot dose. Yeah. It's horrible. But I had to go to court to court the next day. I had to let the DA know. And then they adjourned it. And I had to come back to produce a death certificate. I mean, your job is not done. You know, yeah, I guess I could have walked away and let them issue a warrant, but you know, they want to see proof, too. They're not just going to take my word for it. I wasn't there. So, you know, there are things that you have to con continue working with. I checked the docket today before getting on your show. There's no change in the docket. He's still wanted, you know, under that uh, federal arrest warrant. So there are things that need to be done and completed. Like I said, I'm sure there's property that was removed that needs to be returned. You know, Joe, if, can I ask you? Can I ask you a quick question from the Mystery Maven, uh, who I also thank. Uh, uh, thank you yes. so much for the nine ninety nine super chat. Joe Murray Bertolino said, "Laundries may talk to Petitos if meetings things happen first. What do you think of those things slash relevance? Do you think it's to avoid potential liability of some sort?" I don't think it's about liability. I think you know. I certainly believe that this investigation, we don't know a lot of the facts. This investigation should continue until they can confirm or rule him out. And then once you're, or, or rule him in as being the the, uh, the perpetrator, 
But I don't see that. There is no probable cause. They chose not to charge him. That tells me that perhaps they did find third-party DNA and they're trying to now, you know, do a match or try to find someone. Why wouldn't they charge him? So everyone wants to shut this down. I don't, I think it's premature and it should go forward. And maybe that's part of the conversations that, you know, that may impede them communicating because there's still an active investigation. So I, I, I'm really just worried about shutting this thing that I know everybody wants it to, you know, say that he did it and he committed suicide and it's over. I don't think, I think that's, you know, irresponsible. Phil, you're shaking your head. What no, do you got? I, I, I got to agree with Joe on half. I believe that the investigation should definitely continue. And I've said this in two previous shows. I think the Petito family has the, uh, the right to sit down with the investigators when everything is completed. First off, the investigation of the death of their daughter. Secondly, the death of Brian. And they should be given all the facts, any DNA evidence that was recovered, any video evidence that could show circumstantial evidence regarding uh, what happened to their daughter, any cell phone uh, evidence. They should sit down with them at some point, go over everything, lay it out for them, let them know what they believe happened. Because I think I'm very confident between the FBI, the local police, they're going to have a very good idea and a very good picture of what happened to Gabby Petito. We think on August 27th into the 28th, sometime that night that, uh, you, you know, there, the, even though the body was in the uh, wilderness for a while, there may be still some physical evidence. There's going to be a lot of things that can be discussed. And I think the family that law enforcement FBI has an obligation to, uh, give that to the family so that way there's less questions left and less doubt in their mind. And if there is other uh, DNA evidence that's recovered, they should be told that too. Of course, they should be given full access to the full investigation. They need to sit down with them, have a conference, explain everything to them. And with regard to Brian's family, when when uh, when they determine what happened to him or what they believe happened to him, whatever they can find, I mean, they just recovered some more bone evidence today. They're still searching in and around the area where his backpack was found and his skeletal remains were found. I think they said they found some more bone evidence. They don't know if it's an animal bone or a human bone. I'm sure they'll find out. So even them, they should be given the opportunity to find out what they believe happened to their son. You know, guys, we could actually spend the whole hour or more on this, but I promised uh, the audience that we were going to go look into the, the case of the fatal shooting on the movie set in, 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 uh, involving Mr. Baldwin. So uh, we're going to go to a quick break, and then we're going to segue to that case. Phil. Joe Murray, president accounted for. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. That's jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. That's 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. That's joe at jmurray-law.com. And I think he has shown his legal capabilities on this show. For sure. It's sort of funny reading the commercial when Joe's here, but that's 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 part of it, you know. Um, that's D. And Dee is a court stenographer, but yet she's multi-talented. She, she owns a company called Dee's Designs. And what better way to honor our first responders than a personalized Christmas ornament that will act as a reminder of their hard work and dedication. 
Each one of them is three by five inches wide and can be customized with a name, badge number, county, etc. There's also room on the back for an engraved personal message to your favorite first responder. Each ornament has a few different variations depending on your likes. Please contact us and let us help you create a very unique gift for you to give to your first responder. Please leave all details on the customization box for name, etc. on the front of the ornament. And if you like an inscription on the back, leave those details in the customization box as well. You'll receive confirmation before anything is printed. These-designs-107.myshopify.com. Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, all those holidays are coming up. So get your orders in now. Right around the corner. Right around Before the corner. You so, you know, Phil, can I just point something out? Because I think Phil is making the same mistake I made. This sure. rumor that Bernalini, Bernalino is uh, a real estate lawyer. I went to his website. First, I went to the New York State Directory of Attorneys to see possibly there's two Stephen Bertolinis. There's only one. I went to his website, and I'm just reading from his website. Stephen Bertolino has been representing clients and counseling their families since 1995 on various misdemeanor and felony issues under the penal law, such as DWI, narcotics violations, burglary, larceny, rape, sexual offenses, assault, battery, trespass, and disorderly conduct. I, I just, I don't know where that came from, but it's just more proof that this family has been maligned from the beginning. They've been destroyed. And this guy is, it's right on his website. He practices criminal law since 95, a decade before I started. You know? <laughs> I don't know. No, Joe, Joe, I'm just, I'm not, I'm not saying, look, that, that also was the, the media even called him a real estate attorney. Yeah, I, I, fell into uh, we got it from. I, I was referring to him as a yeah, real estate attorney. Yeah, so misinformation. But I, I, I still feel, even though he's a criminal defense attorney, I think this case, he's out of his league. I think this that, case is, is too big for him. Yeah, and, that, that point and, is you know, I, let's, let's, we're going to, we'll probably talk about this case again this week. I don't, I know, Joe, you, you don't feel like you got, your left and right hooks in. And uh, I'm going to give you a chance on the next case. But I want to put this on the screen first, and then we'll get into this case of the um, the shooting um, on the movie set involving Alec Baldwin. Learn new details about what happened in the moments before he fired a prop gun that killed cinematographer Helena Hutchins. This is new details emerge about the alleged conditions on set and prior concerns raised about safety. ABC's Kaylee Hartung is in Santa Fe with the latest on the investigation. Good morning, Kaylee. Hey, good morning, Victor. We are getting a better picture this morning of what went wrong on the Santa Fe set. Investigators are still talking to cast and crew here at the Sheriff's Department, but one Rust crew member telling us he had never met a director of photography so kind, selfless, and talented as Helena Hutchins. And as this crew mourns the loss of her life cut too short, we are hearing from her husband for the first time this morning. This morning, a search warrant in the urgent investigation into that horrifying movie set shooting, revealing how that loaded firearm ended up in Alec Baldwin's hands. Police say Baldwin fired a prop gun, accidentally killing a cinematographer and injuring the director during the production of the Western film Rust. The warrant detailing the moment an assistant director handed Baldwin the prop gun, proclaiming it was a cold gun, a term used to let the crew know the weapon does not contain live rounds. The gun, handled by armorer, identified as Hannah Gutierrez. After the gun was fired by Baldwin, she took the spent casing out before handing it to top authorities. But when Baldwin fired, a projectile struck 42-year-old Helena Hutchins in the chest, 
killing her and wounding director Joel Souza in the shoulder. Baldwin, seen here, doubled over in agony moments after being questioned by police, tweeting, his heart is broken and he's in touch with Helena's grieving husband. This chilling 911 call describing the chaos on the set. This f***ing that yelled at me at lunch because asking about revision. He's supposed to check the guns. He's responsible for it. The assistant director telling investigators he did not know there were any rounds in the gun. One crew member telling ABC News the issue of gun safety had been brought up by the camera crew and brushed off repeatedly by producers. In the past week, there were at least two accidental discharges of the prop gun on set, according to that member of the camera crew, who said a list of safety and other concerns prompted almost the entire camera department to walk off the set just hours before the shooting. Russ producers telling Variety they were not aware of complaints and would conduct an internal review of procedures and are cooperating with the investigation. The film industry's standard safety bulletin for firearms on set emphasizes blanks can kill. Live ammunition is never to be used nor brought onto any studio lot or stage. It's tragic. It's horrible. It's preventable. This sort of thing doesn't happen. Hutchins' husband, Matthew, expressing his grief in a heartfelt post on Twitter, saying Helena inspired us all with her passion and vision, adding her legacy is too meaningful to encapsulate in words. It's been nearly 30 years since the accidental death of Brandon Lee, the son of famed martial artist Bruce Lee, while filming the movie The Crow. It brought back a lot of feelings and emotions um, for me and my family. Brandon Lee was also killed when a prop gun accidentally fired a live round. I think in this day and age, there's no reason to have a gun that can fire a projectile on a set. And we're already seeing the reverberations of this tragedy in Hollywood. ABC's crime drama, The Rookie, saying they will ban all live gunfire on set immediately. Any gunfire that they have, it will be done by airsoft guns. Those are similar to BB guns. And any special effects will be done in post-production through CGI wit. Just an awful tragedy and still so many questions. You know, that, that report, uh, I mean, it, it gives you a, a picture of, of what occurred. But you know something? We can't be, go into this emotionally. This needs a f complete and thorough investigation. What is the liability of Alec Baldwin? Why was he pointing the gun at this director of photographer? Why did he pull the trigger pointing at her? I want to know that. Of course, the most clear-cut negligence is why was there a projectile and a prop gun? There's multiple levels of, of, of criminal, potentially criminal charges to be leveled against the person that's supposed to make that gun safe. But what is the responsibility of the actual actor? Is he not also trained to check to see if that gun is safe? So I'm not clearing Alec Baldwin. Part two of this, I'm not, I'm not convinced that this small little town in Santa Fe, New Mexico, is going to have enough investigators and enough political clout to go in there like the police and the detectives and the investigators should and do a thorough investigation and kick ass and take names because they're going to, they're going to, this movie company is going to attempt to thwart their investigation because this could be not just a criminal charge, but the civil liability is off the charts. Bill, you know, I want to make a point real quick. Yesterday, we were on the show and someone sent an email uh, claimed to be a police officer, 24 years in that area. I didn't come across as disparaging towards the police officers. Just exactly what you said. We just felt that a small town might not have enough manpower and we would reach out to other either agencies, state police, whatever. So I just wanted to clear that up. I would never, you know, I, I'm... Uh, 
very much behind law enforcement. I wasn't disparaging towards any police officer or anything like that. That report that we just saw, she said uh, she referred to the term cold weapon. The cold weapon is not what she said. She said it, it, it meant that it didn't have a live round. No, that's not the case. There's blanks that are used in filming. There's uh, a, a completely dead round, but it looks like a, a, a completed round. It has a head on it. And then there's uh, something that they put. Uh, they put a little ball. They take the gunpowder out and they put a little ball in it. And if you shake it, you can hear that. And that's how you know it's an inert round. So a cold weapon has nothing in it. It can't, can't have anything in it. There's not a blank in there. There's nothing. So again, the AD is handing him a gun that supposedly was a cold weapon, meaning it had nothing in it. And he goes in and points it probably thinking it has absolutely nothing in it. Wherever, whatever direction he pointed in, it killed uh, Helena Hutchins and it wounded Joel Souza. Now, Earlier today, there was reports, I saw it on the news, that said that they were using that same gun for target practice a few days ago. So there were different people, part of the cast, that didn't like what was going on. The safety protocols weren't being followed. Cameramen walked off the set. Other people in the production walked off the set. So the bottom line is this, I think, and Joe's probably going to be able to answer this, there's going to be criminal liability somewhere along the line in this case because of recklessness. That's what I believe. We had Steve Gardell on yesterday that works in the movie TV unit. He retired out of there. He works with current productions now. He teaches gun safety. He does technical advising. He went through a litany of protocols that have to be followed. It, it appears, I mean, it's very early in investigation. It sounds like a lot of them weren't followed. Reckless behavior. I mean, if they were taking that gun out back someplace and using it and firing, taking target practice, and then they're, they're taking that gun and rounds could get mixed up, very, very bad. Uh, Joe, you want to comment on any of that? As far yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I just want to commend you guys. I was even asked by somebody to comment on this as an attorney, uh, previous police officer and attorney. I just felt incompetent to really comment on it because it's not an area of law that I'm familiar with because I do know there's a lot of regulations about how these guns should be handled and and what type of guns and what have, what the specifications are. And I only know that because I have a case currently where the police arrested my client, did a search warrant, and recovered like 16 guns, but they were all fake firearms. They were not real. So I started to have to, you know, look this up in the administrative code. So it's a very technical thing. But your show, when you brought that expert on, was just amazing. I've never heard of the prop master and the arm, the armorer, but they all have specific jobs and responsibilities. And the assistant director, I, I, I don't even know how that's even possible. The armorer is supposed to, you know, have that gun present it, you know, whatever, how many shots it should have for the scene, give it to the actor, show the actor that it's, it's not, you know, capable of firing a projectile and then give it to him with instructions that use this. It's going to fire one shot or three shots. And then give it to me. Do not move from here. Like, it's very strict, according to him, about the rules. So I, I really, at first, when I heard this, I was like, ah, oh, Bolin, there's no way you can hold him responsible. The guy told him it was a, a cold gun, and he assumed that it was empty. It's not his job to check everything. 
So I was very sympathetic to Baldwin in his position, but after learning this, that this process is in place and, and the checks and balances that go along the way, he's an experienced actor. He had to know this. And I think what led up to it, because when I, I was horrified to hear that people were walking off the job prior to that because of safety concerns. So what I believe happened is a lot of people that should have been there in, in this line of checks were no longer there. And Baldwin knew that because, hey, where's the regular guy? Oh, they left or what, you know? So it's it's potentially now that he would have liability because he knew that this was not the right process and failed to verify himself that the gun was incapable of firing a projectile. And then even learning that, even knowing that it can't fire, they still take the extra, extra precaution by not aiming right at the person. They right. aim, you know, to the side of it. They aim on an angle. Yeah, on an angle. Even knowing that, you know, he failed to do that. So I think he's got, I think everyone that touched that gun has liability all the way up the chain. Joe, you know, I just wanted to say something. I said something, let's not go into this case emotional. And look, this woman who was the director of photography, her name is Helena Hutchins. Tragedy, beautiful woman. She's a mother, she's a wife. I don't mean it in that way. I mean it as an investigator. Sure. If, Sergeant, if Sergeant Bill Cannon was told, go to that ranch in Santa Fe and find out what happened. Guess what? I want 25 detectives with me because there's going to be 100 uh, people on that crew. They all have to be interviewed separately. You have to get them in separate rooms. They can't, you can't allow them to talk to each other. Do you think this movie company is going to try to thwart this investigation? You yeah. bet their ass they are because they're facing billions and of dollars of liability. You think Alec Baldwin, he, does he want to accept his liability in this? Not only can he be criminally charged, but he can be also sued civilly, which he, of course he's going to be. Because guess what? The buck stops with the guy who pulled the trigger. Yeah. And there's a lot of other people you can blame. But let's find out the truth. Let's find out what happened. And I'm not, I don't feel secure in the fact that, first of all, this place, the Bonanza Creek Ranch, that's their business. They rent out this location for movie sets. What kind of thorough investigation do you think they want? Yeah. They want this investigation to be over the day it happened. Yeah. But this investigation, thorough investigations do not happen quickly. And if you want a thorough and complete and accurate investigation, you have to have the personnel on board and you and these people that try to thwart it, you got to let them know. That's we'll, we'll lock your ass up. You try to thwart this investigation. And I'm just not sure that they're going to have the manpower to do this because they need to find out what the hell happened here because it's gross negligence on so many different levels. And a beautiful woman who's a mother and a wife and an aunt is dead right now. And someone has to answer for that. Yeah. You, know, you know, Billy, I'm glad you brought up the point about the emotion because us as detective, you're assigned to a homicide investigation. You're the person that speaks for the person that was killed and you're going to get seek justice for that person. Now, going back to the armorer, Joe, the yeah. armorer, my understanding is the armorer has to be licensed wherever they're filming this movie to be able to handle firearms. Now, I don't know if it's a federal firearms license or whatever it is. Like I know in New York, they want them to be registered with the NYPD to be able to handle if it's a handgun. Now, 
who knows? I mean, I'm I'm just going to speculate here. Who knows if now? Why was the AD handing that gun to uh, to Alec Baldwin? Who knows if maybe the you know he he's kind of intimidated. He's got this big shot AD. He's got Alec Baldwin, a big shot actor, and he submitted to them. He's wrong. He shouldn't have did that. And we don't know if maybe you know I don't I don't know any of the details. I'm just speculating again. Maybe Alec Baldwin was horsing around and, and, you know, the gun just went off. And that's how it hit these people that may have been. I don't think the gun was aimed at uh, Helena Hutchins. I don't know, but it doesn't sound like it sounds like because it hit two people. I, I think it was one shot and it hit two people. So it sounds like maybe, the, the again, he could have been aiming at another actor, but off angle, which is what the way that they're supposed to do it. They're not supposed to aim any gun directly at the person. And it goes to gun safety. When we went through the police academy and we started our, uh, our training, they always said, always point the gun downrange because you have to assume that that gun is ready to go. So that's why we always, always have that safety in mind. Now they may have not, you know, enlisted that kind of safety and it led to this horrible tragedy. And, you know, again, Alec Baldwin may or may not be facing criminal liability, but he's going to have to live with this for the rest of his life. And Bill, you made a, a such a, a, a real good point. Cause I saw a picture of this young lady, Helena Hutchins today uh, on the news with her, with her young son and her, her husband. And you hear nothing but nice things about what a great family person she was. And she was so into her craft. So it's a, it's a horrible loss. It's a horrible tragedy. And Baldwin and the rest of the people, whoever's involved, they're going to have to live with that. They're going to have well, to live with this. You know, I I know she's a wonderful person and stuff, but you make it sound like if it was a criminal defense attorney, yeah, it's not such a big deal, you know. <laughs> no, I didn't mean it that way at all, Joe. Not at all. <laughs> I'm busting your chops. No, I think you hit right on the head, but I think everyone is going to have liability all the way down the line. You know, the, I, I think it could be related to people walking off the job who didn't feel safe. So it tells me that they must have been involved in that, you know, operations of, of the, you know, between the armor and getting it to the actor. So, yeah, mm, I think, you know, from watching your expert, which was wonderful. I mean, that that is so valuable just to listen to him. He was so knowledgeable, I guess, you know, having done it for so long. Uh, but it really clarified the issues. And, and as far as liability issues, everyone along that line has liability that touched that gun. Yeah, I'd want to talk to those people that walked off too. I, as an investigator, I'd be getting a hold of them. And what was, what did you see? Or why did you leave? I want to know all the details. And you're going to get a picture. You're going to get a puzzle put. You know, the piece will come together, and you'll get a pretty good idea of what was going on in that set. And don't forget, you know, they're out in the New Mexico desert. Uh, to take a gun and go off to the side someplace and take fire, you know, fire some shots with it. That's not out of the realm of possibility. It's almost like routine out there. You know, there's a lot of uh, firearms in that area, I'm sure being used, but yeah. you know, when you're, when you're playing with live guns and now you're going to interact it into a movie set and, and into a scene and you, God forbid, mix up around, you know, I think uh, Brandon Lee's sister said it best. She said there shouldn't be real guns on the set. They should use these these airsoft guns. They they actually project. Uh, it's almost like a hard piece of styrofoam. It, it, it probably. I mean, if it hit in the eye, it could probably blind you. But you know, uh, it can't kill you. That's for sure. And that's right. and it's it's powered by air. There's no gunpowder. Uh, you know, there's nothing that uh, causes uh, an explosion or anything like that. It's all done by air. But it makes that sound. You know, Philly, people in the chat are talking about, uh, you know, they don't know a lot about firearms. They're talking about a safety on a gun. There is no safety on a revolver. 
uh, a revolver, you pull the trigger, it, the cylinder right. turns and, and uh, the, uh, the firing pin hits the round and it goes off. Uh, the only good type of guns that have a safety are semi-automatics. And um, so there's no, and this was a period piece. Right, I was so just going to say that. This was more likely a revolver because they were not going to have semi-automatics in a period piece. But look, firearm safety is nothing to mess around with, you know. And we being trained in the NYPD, I felt we used to go to the range twice a year. I didn't feel that was enough, you know. Me but too. Yet, I agree with you, Bill. You know, I, I felt that we should have, and you know, and if you talk to our bosses, they would say, well, you can go on your own time. Yeah, well, who's paying $25 a box for nine millimeters, you know? The department should pay for that, you know? So I, I didn't feel going twice a year, but yet, so 27 years I went, you know, how many times? I nearly more than fifty times, and shooting on my own. I, but it's still not enough. You cannot shoot enough times. I always used to say when I went to the range and I saw the guy that had one big hole in the center of his target. That's the scary guy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> that's the guy. That's the guy who's going to the range five times a week. You know, he just has a big hole in the middle of his target. You know, that guy knows how to shoot, right? How about this, Billy? I'm in the police academy. We're on the line and we're all lined up and we're firing shots. And the instructor says, fire two rounds, you know. So I fire my two rounds. He goes to market and he looks at me. He goes, I told you fire two. He like yells at me. He goes to the next target. No no rounds. Uh, another police officer shot my target. So again, you know, you, you got to practice makes perfect. And, uh, you know, you can't get enough training when it comes to firearms. I agree with you. Bill, real quick, you, you talked about the safeties. Safeties are on automatics 100%. This may have been, uh, because it was a period piece, may have been a rifle. And those rifles didn't have safeties. They, you know, had the, the ones that have the cock on the bottom, you know. So, again, if it's a rifle or a pistol, we don't know. But very unlikely that there were safeties. Those type of guns didn't have sa safety back in those days. But, you know, Phil, anyone that's going to handle a, a fire on a, on a movie set should have to take, like, a course, like an eight-hour course, yes. maybe before the start of the movie or a four-hour course. Because safety is nothing to play with. And, obviously, look what happened here. Lots of blame to go around. And again, in no way when we said, let's not get emotional, we mean as investigators, let's not get emotional. Let's get this in investigation right. done and let's find out what the hell happened so it never happens again. There's going to be a lot of uh, problems with this. There's going to be potentially someone could be criminally charged and yeah. it would the charge would be criminally negligent homicide unless it could even be upped even further. You know, uh, Joe, what's, a, what's another potential charge? Manslaughter. I mean, that's that's horrible. Yeah, you know, a, direct, a manslaughter by recklessness, right? Yeah, you sure. consciously disregard an unjustifiable risk that you could kill the person. Not only did you not check the gun, but you fired it at him, uh, her. You fired it at her. So, you know, the, the, you deviated the standard of care by such a gross amount that you could be charged with that. You know, you know, Joe, I don't see though if you see this question in the chat, but this is brilliant. Would law enforcement have given Alec a substance drug alcohol test? 100% that should occur. That should absolutely occur for future civil liability, for state current, of mind. Yeah, Go for current uh, possible criminal liability, 100%. And he'd be the first one to ask for a police officer to have that if he was in a shooting like this. Yeah, but unfortunately, I don't think they could get that without a warrant. It's not like DWI where you're, you're driving is a privilege. So by virtue of being granted a license, you have to 
you know, abide by these statutes, you know, I don't think there's any statute that relates to this incident. But Joe, how did. hard would it be to get a warrant to go to a judge yeah. and say, listen, this guy on a movie set shot and killed shot somebody. somebody. I yeah. want him tested for alcohol and drugs. Yeah. I, I, I hope it was done. Do we know that? Was it? I, I don't know. I just, I Lynn, think it's a great question. But Lynn yeah. S. Mason, brilliant, brilliant question. And right. Because they, the police officers routinely, if they get in a shooting, they're tested yeah. for drug and alcohol use. So yeah, sure. uh, how about on this movie set with all of this negligence and all of this, this occur, apparently accidental death. And I'm saying that apparently because the investigation is not even close to being over, but you know, even the way look, the, I would say when the investigation's over, it looks like it. Yes, it was a huge tragedy, gross, gross negligence on the part of many people. But yeah, we we want to feel bad for for what, of course, what happened to the uh, director of photographer, and maybe for Alec Baldwin too. But we don't know. We don't know what the criminal or the civil liability is right now. Yeah, I think you're going to see some type of crim criminal charges uh, down the line for reckless uh, reckless behavior here. I, I could clearly see that. What do you think, Joe? You think there'll be criminal charges at the end of the day? Somebody, uh, whether it be the AD or whoever's in charge of those firearms? Absolutely. I think, like I said, each one of them seems to have, after listening to your expert, I keep forgetting his name, a sergeant that was Stephen on Gardell, Sergeant Stephen Gardell. Sergeant Stephen Gardell. He was just phenomenal. But listening to him, each one of those people that touch that gun has liability, particularly the, the I, I would think the armor, they must be under his custody and control. And it's usually the armor that goes to the actor and, and shows it and displays it and breaks it, you know, like there's nothing in there that can be no projectile can be fired, just assuring the actor that they're not going to kill anyone. And then he gives the actor specific instructions. There are three rounds in here. After the third shot, stay here. Do not move. I'm going to take the gun from you. Like that sounds like, you know, it would be impossible to have a tragedy like this under those rules. So I think that armor is going to have a problem. How these guns were left out there, you know, where the uh, assistant uh, director could just grab it and give it to uh, to Baldwin. And then Baldwin, knowing that, you know, been an actor for so long, uh, that this is the protocol that should be followed, and he didn't, you know, observe the gun being broken down or do it himself, I think I think every one of them has liability. And, and it was amazing. It wasn't until I watched your show that I came to that. I really felt that Baldwin, it wasn't his responsibility. There were people on set to do that, like the armorer, who then, you know, convey to him that it's safe, and he relies on it. But after watching that show, I think they all have liability. You know, there's a question on the screen, and I think this is brilliant, and so that's why I always check the chat. Kelly Delmonico Sad to say, but don't discount that a disgruntled crew member trying to prove a point how unsafe the set was purposely left a live round in the chamber but never intended anyone to get killed. And that's why you need a thorough, complete, and professional investigation of this. That possibility could occur, could have occurred. 
That that would be super deranged if you could do something like that. I, I it's possible. I get it, and I think it's a great comment. But how deranged can you be? Oh, I'm I'm going to get even with them. Throw a live round into a gun and then leave it, and then you know mm. somebody uh, unfortunately, well, two people shot, one person killed. That is deranged. That's really deranged. Well, and know, if that were the case, I'd like like to get that person in cuffs real quick. Just to your point, Phil, which I thought was brilliant, you know, we're in New York City and, and guns are as uh, illegal as they are and, and worse than any, the gun laws here are just horrible. So it's not really, you know, common for people to handle firearms where out there, I would imagine it's it's much more lenient. And the fact that this is a period piece, I'm sure people were firing this weapon, you know, and and. You know, just because of the nature of it, it's it's an antique of some sort. They said that. They said they were taking target practice with that same weapon a day or two before. So, yeah. see, Joe, that as an attorney, that that's gross negligence. Absolutely. Uh, oh, that they were yeah. Phoebe Phoebe Beach. The union workers were not treated right. Walked off that day, then were quickly replaced and told they would not be rehired. Baldwin was the producer. Could there be something to that? Again, that's why this needs a complete. And professional investigation, not a half-ass investigation, you know, where you just, you know, you throw some angel, you throw some fingerprint dust and say, okay, it's over. You know, is there, could this, could this incident potentially have been caught on film? Yeah. Possible. Sure. That's another thing we got to, uh, and, and that would be very telling if it's on film. I mean, you know, you can show uh, reckless disregard if he was waving it around or something like that. We know that, you know, you're, you're supposed to be pointing at whoever you're supposed to be, you know, shooting the scene at. You know, you're supposed to be firing the gun at this person. You're not supposed to be pointing it directly at them. You're supposed to be off to an angle. But again, who's behind off to that angle in the, in the foreground, too? So I think if it's caught on film, that's going to be very powerful for civil liability as well as criminal liability. That's a great uh, point. Mamachi, I'm sorry, I just wanted to read her question. Okay, yeah, yeah. You go. I'll, I'll read it after I, you. I was just going to say, we know from doing the perfect murder, when they run a scene, like they start, you know, the camera like ahead of time before they sure. actually, you know, call the actors to start. So, yeah, there's a good possibility. That's there, there's going. times that they keep going even. Don't cut. Keep yeah. it rolling. And then they reset. And so, yeah, there's a good possibility. And a lot of times there's multiple cameras on a scene. So you yeah. may have a good shot at uh, if it was during an actual shooting, you know, they were sh well, wow. shooting. It was a shooting. I mean, shooting the, the, the scenes, you may have it on film. Mamachi, uh, she asks, how hard is it to check a gun for bullets before pointing it at someone pulling a trigger? It's not hard at all. It no. simply is for a revolver. It's opening the uh, cylinder and checking each, uh, check checking each, panel in the cylinder and uh see that it's unloaded it's not very all hard. those chambers are empty you're good to go and you, right. you know they always taught us in gun safety we had revolver training when we came on the job you know you, you turn it upside down and you hit the extractor and you know there's nothing in there you can see physically see that there's nothing in there too so that's a great point you know what wow. really bothered me though after learning about brandon lee i didn't know that story about you know, they, they removed the uh, projectile, emptied out the powder, put the projectile back in, and it fired. It had enough power to, to dislodge it from the, the shell casing. And it that, was the primer, the that was the primer, Joe. That was the primer. The primer, yeah. Yeah, it, it just pushed it into the barrel a little bit. So the person who actually fired it, looking at it, oh, it's just a blank. 
you know, had probably did the right thing, you know, checking to see, yeah, it was a blank, didn't know there was that projectile lodged in the barrel. That's shocking. Shocking. Bushwhacker. And then they put, they put an actual blank in, which has a full charge, but there's no bullet on it. There's no projectile on it. Yeah. But the projectile was, you know, already into the barrel of the gun. So now you had a full charge. It hits the projectile and it launched off the bullet and it killed Brandon Lee. Yeah. Bushwhacker, thank you so much for the eighty nine ninety nine super chat. Wow, thank you so much. Hey, his his comment is, "Hey, Eagles above, hope you are all well and all and your mods." Let's not blame D and A for this. Gives the lawyer an out an out for a rehab. It seems to be pure arrogance of Alex, who points a gun at anyone unless to harm. But Armory also had has questions to answer. Yes, Alex has to answer some questions, and of course. He's going to be upset of the, over this, but he's got some criminal liability here. And no matter how upset he is, the investigators have to do a thorough investigation and get him on paper, get his interview down, see what he says. Why did he do something stupid like this? And I'm calling it stupid because pointing the gun at this woman, the director of photography, was stupid. Uh Listen to the nine one one call with with uh, uh, the woman on the you know calling nine one one is saying oh did that ad he was yelling at me it's his fault blah, blah. so you have people already I mean and that's in the seconds after this happened you know a minute or two and you have someone calling nine one one and they're already pointing fingers and disgruntled so the right interviews are going to come up with all of the necessary facts of this horrible horrible tragedy. You know, folks are even saying in the chat, you know, of course, guns in Santa Fe, New Mexico, it's, it's like carrying, uh, you know, carrying change in your pocket. People probably carrying guns around with them. Uh, and I think the law in a lot of these Western states is that you can carry a gun as long as it's not concealed. They don't want it to be concealed. However, on a movie set where safety has to be number one, I don't want to see any guns within 50 miles of this set unless the armor is the one handling them. Because tragedies like this can happen. And to go over the top with safety, yeah, that's what you have to do. And we've been gone to the NYPD shooting range probably a hundred times between us all. And they used to say, make a physical and uh, a site inspection of the gun before you tell, you know, before you say it's empty, right? And with, with a semi automatic, it's even more because you can pull out the clip. And there could still be one in the chamber. So that's why they say do a physical and a site inspection of the gun before you say it's empty. When we would go to the range, draw and present. When you draw and present your firearm, you would, if it was the revolver, you would open it up and you would open the cylinders. That way there's no way it could fire. And then you would hand the gun for inspection to the to the instructor. So there's protocols that we took. To keep, you know, you can't have a gun go off if that thing is, if the cylinder is actually open. And when you draw and present it, it can't go off. And obviously with automatics, we would go to the to the uh, canister, unload, take the clip out, rack it a few times. Now, you know, like Bill said, and you would you would hand it to them open with the, with the slide back. Now, you know, it can't fire. There's nothing in there. Shannon, Georgia Peach, how important is it for actors to have gun training? I'm Joe, I'm going to let you answer that. Yeah, I think it's important, uh, you know, just for this very thing we're talking about, you know, to know how the operations of the gun works, because as we learned yesterday, the armorer will actually display the gun and show you how it's incapable of 
firing a projectile, that's something you want to know. When you point a gun at somebody, you know, I, I, I just feel like the personal responsibility, you know, and, and he even brought that out. Some actors personally want to know, you know, whether or not he, he shows them, you know, that they actually ask for it because it's such an awesome responsibility pointing a gun and firing it at somebody. So I think the knowledge of how the gun operations work, whether it's a revolver, an antique, or, you know, a semi-automatic, I think is essential. You know, and then if you pull the trigger and it, and it well, you know something, that term misfire, there's really, it's a misnomer. A gun doesn't misfire. A gun doesn't go off unless you pull the trigger. And like you'll see it on TV, someone will drop a gun and it will fire. Could that happen? I, if you talk to anyone that's a ballistics expert, they would tell you no. Is it a is it possible it could happen? You know, as I said, talk to a ballistics expert. He'll tell you that that no, it can't happen. That the only way a gun can go off is if you pull the trigger. TZ, thanks for the five dollars super chat. If they were shooting the gun a day or, or days prior at a target, wouldn't that mean live bullets were in the gun since they were trying to hit a target? Yeah, or live bullets had been in the gun, and the armor. It's his responsibility that there be no live rounds anywhere around That's that cool. movie set. And, you know, we were speaking about that in great length yesterday with uh, Sergeant Steve Gordell from the movie TV unit. Absolutely. You know, with regards to the misfire, I I, I think only in a circumstance where it was single action or it was cocked already. You're right. I mean, the pounds of pressure to pull a trigger, that doesn't happen by falling on the floor. But perhaps if it was cocked, you know, like if this is an old Western gun and it was cocked and you dropped it, maybe – but uh, you're 100% right. I mean, I, I forget what it is, the, the foot pounds. The Four, it's 14.7 pounds for a revolver. That That's doesn't the, happen by falling. Yeah, no, I'm not. Uh, Phil, maybe you can answer this. Bushwhacker yes. asked this question. How do you recognize a blank to live? Isn't it snubbed, flat-ended? You know. Okay, the th- there's two types of blanks that he used in the movie business when they reenact the shooting. Now, there's one that has... Uh, it has a projectile look on the front of the, the round. Now, a, a real l- – let me back up a little bit. A regular bullet has the shell casing. There's a primer in the back. The primer is what ignites the gunpowder inside the shell casing, and the projectile is on the front. So sometimes they will take a bullet, open it up, take all the gunpowder out, and they place a BB in there, a small BB. They put it back so you can shake the round. Now, if you shake a live round – you don't hear any movement inside that round. They put that BB in to show that this is an, a, a round that has no gunpowder in it, meaning it may have a primer, doesn't have any gunpowder. The primer can only make a small blast. It doesn't it, uh, it doesn't expel the round from the gun. But the blanks w- have a full charge of gunpowder, but there's no projectile on it. So they put like a um, they put a flat. Uh, I don't know if it's wax or a piece of plastic on there, but it doesn't project anything. It just You'll see a muzzle flash. So there are several types. And then there is a, a bullet that looks exactly like a real bullet, but it's completely inert. It doesn't have any charge on it. doesn't have any gunpowder, but it looks like a, a live round. Now, when it again, when they say a, a round, uh, a firearm is cold, that means it has nothing in it at all. That's a cold firearm. Nothing. Bushwhacker asks another question. Well, Let me yeah, just get no. his question in, Joe. Yeah. Isn't it the rule whenever handed a gun, it's your responsibility when and what comes out of it, so always check if it's safe. And uh, Joe, go ahead. You can answer this. I, I, I just wanted to add, 
when we had the Revalas, didn't we have those wad cutters that were just flat? That's on what we used. That's what we used at the range, and they yeah, fly. Wad cutter, wad cutter is, is a it's a cut down projectile. That's all that is. There's less lead in a wad cutter than there is in a regular round, and that's so it hits the paper, it makes a hole in the paper. It can still kill you though. It's yeah, just less. Yeah. The projectile is much smaller. That's all that is. Joe, okay. you want to answer the question by Bushwhacker there? Isn't it the rule whenever handed a gun, it's your responsibility when and what comes out of it? So always check if it's safe. Here is the problem. They usually don't use real guns on the set. They are modified so that they're incapable, like it's a solid barrel. There was incapable of firing a projectile. I don't know what the rules are uh, in Santa Fe that they were allowed to use real guns. So I to address your point if you don't know it's a real gun how do you you know impute that liability on yeah but joe answer this as a police officer not a defense attorney yeah whenever a gun is handed to you you should check to see if it's safe regardless it's a prop gun could someone could have switched it out let me make sure if this says smith and wesson on the side this sure looks like a a real damn gun oh my god there's a live round in it you should check that. That is your responsibility. And if movie companies do not train the actors, then they're negligent. They are negligent and deserve the full hammer of the law to come down on their head. How about this? No more live guns. No more actual guns on movie sets. It should be these airsoft guns or replicas. Like Joe said, in, in New York, they don't use real guns. They use guns that have something in the barrel where a projectile can't come out of it, and it has a load that makes a flash or it makes the sound, and and that's what should be being used. There's no reason in the world that they should have been using a real gun on that set. I'm sorry. That's just... It should be a universal rule throughout the country. You can't use real firearms to reenact, you know, shootings and stuff like that. Of course, God forbid somebody slips around in their real round and look what you got. This poor young lady's dead and the other guy is shot. It's disgusting. Yeah. So but as far uh, as Marie, the Marie rule, though, as far go as ahead, Joe, rule, go ahead. We don't, we don't, it, we don't allow ex post facto laws where it would have had to have been the law that anyone using a gun on, on a scene, a uh, movie scene, has to do that inspection. I mean, we we know it's the prudent thing and the right thing, but to charge somebody, you have to show that they violated, they were pre-warned about it through a statute, they violated that statute. That's, you know, that's the issue. Well, right, I understand so that, but if, they, if there was some gross negligence on this yeah. set, that might not be too hard to prove. Marie Green... Yeah. She feels like Calamity Jane with this oh, fun I talk, learning so much. I'm glad you let, you know, this is the little uh, do, lesson do, for everybody, you know? Bill, do you know who Calamity Jane is? Let's see if you know. Let's see if you don't. Uh, was it uh, some country western cowgirl? That's true. Come on. Oh, Calamity wow. Jane. All right, I'm forgetting. And I Welcome know F. Calamity's girl. That's right. I'm old enough to know F. Troop. You know, guys, we've been on for an hour and 22 minutes. So I think it's that time. Uh, and I want to thank everyone and anyone that's in the chat that's not subscribed to Police Off the Cuff. Please go to our YouTube, hit the subscribe button, ring that bell, give us a thumbs up. I thought this was a really, really interesting uh, podcast today. We covered two cases and a lot of controversy in both of them. Yet I think we did a pretty damn good. I hate, you know, I'm going to pop. I can't reach my back because my shoulders hurt. <laughs> but I'll pat myself on the back. And of course, Phil 
and Joe Murray. But I'm going to give, like I always do, I'm going to give you guys your last words. No reading the the uh, Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Twenty seconds of last words. Joe, you first. Gettysburg Address. Let me start. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to thank you guys. I think it's wonderful what you're doing. Yesterday was the proof of it when you had uh, Sergeant uh, Steve Gardell. Gardell, Stephen Gardell, come on. It was just fantastic. And then discussing it, I'm so much more knowledgeable now to, to make these points. Thank you for what you do. I just want to ask you, let's keep talking about this uh, Gabby Petito, uh, Brian Laundry issue because there are a lot of things that are going to be happening now that need to be explained and it, it will be very telling about what's happening in this investigation. Like I said, they haven't made any adjustment to the docket. So if we can continue doing that, I'd love to participate. Thank you. Okay, Joe, good to have you back. My last comments of this. Thanks again <laughs> to Steve Gardell yesterday. Joe said it. I'm going to say it again. Very, very knowledgeable. When I had a conversation with him, when I we asked him to come on the show, he started telling me things. I said, hold on, Steve. Wait until you're on. Uh, he gave a lot of great points. Uh, he really laid out a lot of great facts. Gun safety, always assume that that gun is loaded no matter what, and nobody's going to get hurt. Point it in a safe direction. Absolutely. Folks, I just want to uh, thank you so much for uh, tuning in. And, uh, you know, I think these were interesting shows, and I don't have to Absolutely. tell you that, or else you wouldn't have hung around to listen. And I love to have Joe Murray on. I think he's a great man and a really great – if I ever got in trouble, I think I'd be giving him a call. I hope I never get in trouble, but I'd be giving Joe Murray a call because he's the kind of guy you want in your corner. And I know a lot of you folks with this case with Gabby Petito and Brian Laundry, it's so emotional. It's so heavily charged. And Joe's just telling you what he would do as a professional attorney. But anyway, we, we uh, wait, we I have a quick correction. I was wrong. It wasn't Wrangler. Jane was F troop. Calamity. Jane was a real person around wild bill Hitchcock Hickok. That's my brother. Nick gave me that point. You Sorry know something, the dangers of Google, people have yes. to know everything immediately. You know, <laughs> oh, anyway. my like, he's good with, he's got a great photographic memory. It was, it was Wrangler. Jane. He's right. I made him. All right, folks. Anyway, thank you so much for listening on behalf of Bill Cannon, Phil Grimaldi, and a defense attorney, Joe Murray, good night and everyone stay safe. Stay safe, guys. One episode, just ain't enough.